prevalent here in our church, um, I like to go through a series. I like to know where we're going. I like to have a direction. Um, and so what we've been doing for the past uh, seven weeks, going on eight weeks, is is discussing the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Um, if you refer to the Holy Ghost as the Holy Ghost, there it is. Um, you probably read from the King James Version of the Bible. Maybe you are uh, from an older generation because that's how he was c commonly referred to. Newer translations like the NIV and the English English Standard Version refer to him as the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we've named this the Holy Ghost, the God you never knew. Many non-Christians and even some full-blown Christians are familiar with God the Father, God the Son, but they lose sight of and become unfamiliar with God the Holy Spirit or God the Holy Ghost. And so what we need to do is get reacquainted with the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three equally God with different offices, three in one, a great mystery the Bible says um, for us to fathom and comprehend how God could be three and one, uh, not being plural, but but having more than one office, uh, God living in this community that he is. The Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost is essential for Christians to not just not just be successful. Because if you go online and you look at Amazon, you look at books about the Holy Spirit and stuff, um, nine times out of ten it's about being a successful Christian. This isn't just about success. This is about functioning daily. This is about just living the gospel. Without the Holy Spirit, it's like beating your head up against a brick wall. You're not going to do it outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. He is absolutely essential to the life of a Christian. Here's the good news. You don't pay for him. You don't wait to receive him from some man or person. The Holy Spirit is a free gift that God has sent to comfort you, to guide you, to lead you, because you have given your life to Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that he would be going back to his father, but he would not leave us as orphans, that he would send the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, so that we would not be alone, A, but also that so we can be led, so that we can be taught. I talk I preach a lot about sin. I preach a lot about um I preach a lot about hell. I preach a lot about being convicted. I could preach about that all day long without the conviction of the Holy Spirit though, it's fruitless. If the Holy Spirit has not changed your heart to see sin as sin, then I'm fighting a losing battle. But if I will preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit has a hold of your heart, you will be convicted of your sins before I even get to that. You will know the things that you do in your life that you just need to be forgiven of. The things that you're ashamed of. The things that you're afraid to bring up. The things you're afraid that other people will know about you. I don't need to know those things. People you know, people invite me into their lives and share these things, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, but we don't parade you in front of the church to point out your flaws and imperfections and, and your shame so that you can give your life to Jesus. The Lord will convict you of that. The Lord will show you what is wrong and show you what you need to repent of. That's the way he's been doing it for thousands of years, and he'll do that with you as well. He does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to discuss how the Holy Spirit is enabling us or empowering us to do, to do something, to do anything. 
This is vitally important. Now, a little bit of a side note. Um, let me tell you a story. I like to tell stories. Stories are fun. So when I was an early teen, 13, 14, having a conversation with my mom. Uh, my mom was a single mom for a little while. Um, when I was born, she, I was born to her at a very young age. And uh, my name uh, – my name's Tony, but my full name is Antonio Paredes. I was named after my biological dad. Um, and she was telling me how uh, she wasn't going to name me that, that she had another name picked out for me. You guys ever have that conversation with mom or dad, how we were going to call you this, but we, we changed our minds? Um, and you have this sigh of relief. Well, that's, that's what I had because I was this close to being named Telly. I only know two Tellys. Here they are. Number one, Telly Savalas. I'm dating myself a little bit here. This is Kojak, you know, the lollipop, bald head, crooner guy from the 70s. Telly. That's the first Telly I know. Here's the second Telly I know. Telly the monster. I was this close to being named after these two guys. I, I looked up famous people with the name Telly. He's the only one that popped up. Google didn't even know about this guy. I had, to t I had to tell Google about Telly the Monster. Names are very important. I, I could have been Pastor Telly. That would just be weird, right? But by the grace of God and his divine providence, I am Pastor Tony. It doesn't sound like that much of a difference. But a name – and God bless you if your name's Telly. You know, If somebody's listening online, if their name is Telly, I don't mean to offend you, but I looked at the percentages. There's like a tenth of a percent chance that you even are named Telly. So – um, my point is this. I'm very grateful that my mom named me Tony instead of Telly or named me Antonio so that I could be referred to as Tony. Who cares about a name? Names are important. You ever have somebody get your name wrong? My last name is Paredes. I can count on one hand how many people have on the first try gotten my name right since kindergarten. It all started in kindergarten. Uh, the kindergarten teacher, uh, Antonio Paradis. It's Paredes, sir. Okay, next grade. Parades. It's Paredes, sir. Uh, Padres. By third grade, I checked out. Whatever, Just call me whatever you want. At this point, it doesn't even matter. Every doctor's visit, every DMV visit, every interview, everybody has gotten my name wrong with the exception of a few people who got it right off the bat. And by the grace of God, I don't know how they did it. It's not a hard name, but it makes a difference, right? And if you've got a name that's got like a bunch of a bunch of letters before you even get to the first sound, I mean, you get. I think of um, the coach of uh, Duke University basketball. Uh, I don't Shashevsky, Shevsky. I've heard it both ways. There's like 14 consonants at the beginning of his name. It starts with a K. Uh, there's an X, maybe. Uh, I think there's a Roman letter in there. There's just a lot of letters before you get to – I don't even know how to say his name correctly. A name is very important, and, and the reason why I bring that up is because today the Holy Spirit goes and empowers us to do things in the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is the name that makes all of the difference in everything that we do. But like everything else in Christianity, there's a wrong teaching about this, and there's what the Bible says about this. Some people like to group themselves into the right and wrong category. I group it into there's what's wrong and there's what the Bible says. And I know the people who are wrong by what the Bible says. 
If they contradict the word of God, I'm going to side with the word of God every time. You could say that the word of God is antiquated. You could say it's old. It's not culturally relevant. If it's the word of God, I'm going to side with it, and, and I will just – I'll put all my eggs in that basket. Turn to John chapter 14 verse 12, and here's, here's where we're going to land this morning when it comes to doing stuff for Jesus. As you turn to John chapter 14 verse 12, let me give you a little background, okay? Um, reading the Bible by itself is all sufficient. If it were you on an island with the Bible, Jesus would talk to you. Jesus would express himself to you through it, and, and you would know everything you need to know about salvation, uh, forgiveness, love, uh, compassion, uh, justification, all of that. But we also praise God because we live in a day and an age where there are men and women and groups and universities who have dedicated themselves to the research around the writing of the Bible. We know more about the Bible today and its origins and how it came to be and how it's been preserved than we have in all of human history. There are books in the Bible that just a generation ago, people were still disputing who authored them and, and, and the validity of them. And archaeological evidence has time and time again confirmed that the Word of God is indeed uh, more than just a book. And so one of the things we know about the book of John is that it's a gospel that was writ written probably after the other three gospels. There are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can consider them all kind of contemporaries, all written about the same time. Um, you see Matthew written, seems like primarily to a Jewish congregation. Uh, Luke was the physician who walked with, uh, with uh, Paul who did research for a man named Theophilus to, to learn about Jesus and investigate Jesus. Mark was probably written by Peter, and as such, it's, it's what you would call a meat and potatoes gospel. You, you don't get the, the nativity story. You get a lot of the facts, just boom, 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 just one after another. A story like a fisherman would tell a story. In the Gospel of John, though, it's most of it's evidence points to the fact that it was written probably 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, somewhere around there. John was referred to as the beloved disciple, and, and as such, um, he was privy to a lot of circumstances, uh, along with James and uh, Peter, that a lot of folks didn't get to see. I think right off the top of my head, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transformed before their very eyes. Peter, James, and John are there. In um, in, in a small town where a young girl has died, Jesus resurrects her life, and Peter, James, and John are there. Um, John gets to see a lot of things, and he's, at this point of his life, become like the elder statesman of the church. And he is sharing things in his gospel that, other, that the other gospel writers didn't share, things that he saw that he was privy to, his perspective. God used him in that way, and, and as such... Chapters 13 through 21 of the Gospel of John, it's only 20 chapters, but almost half of it deals with the last three or four days of Jesus' life uh, prior to his ascension. Um, you have, you know, Good Friday, and, the, and, and you have the Passover meal, and you have the, the burial, and you have the resurrection, and we don't even get to the ascension. We just have that four-day block where most of the Gospel of John deals with. 
And our scripture today lands right smack dab in the middle of that. It's this last discourse between Jesus and his disciples before his death. It's a very important night. Good Friday is coming up in just a couple of weeks. We'll be celebrating uh, Jesus' crucifixion, as, as odd as that sounds. We will be doing that uh, because he has died for our sins. John chapter 14, verse 12 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may, uh, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, notice that twice now Jesus has said that, in my name I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Where most people stumble on this is when Jesus says, you will do greater works than me. So we have to ask the first question, what is greater works? What is Jesus referring to? Are we going to do things greater than Jesus did? The Son of God is going to do stuff on the earth and, and throughout all of human history, and we're going to do things greater than him. We have to pause for just a moment before we say yes or no, whether or not this is true or not true or we're reading this incorrectly. I want to name off some of the things that Jesus has done to get a greater idea, the context of the works that Jesus has done. Okay, so the first is this. Jesus healed the sick. Countless times, sick people came to Jesus and they walked away well. They had debilitating illnesses, physical calamities that could not be healed by, by the medicine of their culture, culture and time. And Jesus, through, through either a prayer or a touch, healed them. True or false, that is a great work. Amen? To be healed of a physical illness is amazing. I gravitate always to the woman with the issue of blood. The Bible says she was bleeding for 12 years and nobody knew why. This made her in the Jewish culture unclean. This means her family could not come around her because they would be unclean. That means if she had nieces and nephews, she could never hug them. That means if they had potlucks or family reunions, she was never welcome there. For 12 years, some of you have been isolated for quite some time. You know and identify with what she went through. And in the blink of an eye, it says that she struggled somehow through a crowd, touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and was healed. Fascinating. Amazing. Great works, I think, is a very mild way of putting that. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus healed the physically disabled. These were people who could not walk. These were people who were blind. These were people who had deformities. These were people who were born uh, with a condition or suffered a condition due to an illness or an accident or something like that. Jesus healed them. They got up and walked away. These are great works, right? If you've ever injured an ankle or a knee or your back and not been able to move for a length of time, you know that the first couple of days might be kind of fun because, you know, you don't have to do much, but you get kind of bored on day three. Like I've already watched all the TV and read all the books. I've done everything I can from this position. I want to get up and do something and then re-injure myself subsequently. Imagine that for your entire life. There was a young man who – he was about 40 years old. He'd been born blind. 
Jesus healed him of that blindness. That's a great work, right? Number three, he cast out demons. Unfortunately, in our culture, we, we always fall on one of two extremes. Demons don't exist, or demons are everywhere. Everybody look out, build yourself a bunker, get some ammunition. Demons are going to get you. There's no happy medium. There is a happy medium. It's called the biblical way of, of understanding uh, demons and the demonic, that they are fallen angels cast out of heaven by God due to the rebellion of Satan, and they now basically are on team Satan and work on his behalf, and they are there. However, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the conquering of sin, Satan, and death, they may fight us, but they have no power over us because we now have the power and the authority of Jesus. We'll deal with that in just a moment. But Jesus went and cast out demons left and right. The last place you would think to see a demon is someplace like church, right? Unfortunately, that's not the case. And in Jesus' Jesus's day, he's in the synagogue preaching one day, and all of a sudden this man who's possessed by a demon starts yelling at him. Just yelling. Like if one of you stood up right now and just started yelling at me, that would be weird, right? Well, that's what happened. And it's not this man. Something has happened to this man to cause him to be demonically possessed by an evil, unclean, the Bible calls, spirit. Starts shouting at Jesus. Son of man, what have you to do to us? Are you going to cast us out? All this other business. Jesus basically tells him in probably the most biblical terms to shut up and to go. And the funniest thing, they do. They just, they're just gone. Boom. I see a lot of videos and books written by guys who are like, for days are just like, in the name of God. And, and they can't, and I'm like, but when I read Jesus casting out demons, they're just gone. When I read about the apostles doing the same thing in Jesus' name, they're just gone. There's something wrong with this scenario. I'm not saying it's I'm not saying anybody's not being genuine or whatever, but I'm just saying there's a, there's something wrong. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus fed the multitudes on twi on two occasions. Jesus took very little food and fed a multitude of people. In one instance it says that he fed about 7,000 men. And in another instance, he read about he served about four thousand men. These are two separate instances, and they only identified the men. If there were families there, husbands and wives, couple of kids, we're looking at anywhere from ten to twenty thousand people, fed by a couple of fishes and loaves. Great works, right? Can you imagine a food bank where you didn't have to go collect the food? You just had like a loaf of bread and a fish, and everybody got fed. Or you could go down to a local restaurant, get a burger and fries, and everybody gets burgers and fries by the end of the day. That sounds like a good work, right? Sounds like a great work. Jesus walked on water. And I'm, I'm, you, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm just tired of the pastors with the get out of your boat and blah, blah, blah. Like, Come on, dude. Jesus walked on water. You don't just do that. Great story. I used to manage a housing complex. And it was a gated community. Within the gated community was a gated pool, and it was it was it was basically my backyard. So at night, um, when I wanted to let my dog out, uh, I would just let her back out there. And it was great. But what she didn't understand was that there was a pool there, and she didn't understand that this giant, enormous, massive pool. She didn't understand that she couldn't walk on it. She tore off across the lawn, across the cement, and she, and I thought she was going to make it. I mean, she's got faith. Look at her. She's going. And she tried to run across the water. It was amazing. She sank. 
And the next thing you know, she swam over to the edge, and I had to pull her out, laughing hysterically. Because I, I, I didn't try to stop her. I just, I'm going to let this unfold. Let's see where this goes. Yep, this is amazing. Um, walking on water. Let's just all come to an agreement. Pretty awesome. Pretty amazing. Yet to see it, see it duplicated at any point in time in hu of human history, right? Walking on water. Pretty cool. Like, that would be a great trick to just, you know, have somebody throw a ball over the thing and just run across it and catch it and just freak everybody out. That'd be a lot of fun. Great work. Jesus preached. Now, now these first few, we would consider them miracles. These next few, sometimes we think we can just pull these off of our own, out of our own power. Uh, Jesus preached the gospel. The Bible's clear that any preacher who preaches the gospel of Jesus does so through the power of God. It's it's a miraculous thing. It's not it's not just I have all the facts and I'm going to spout them in a really good, fun way or a way that people understand. This isn't just uh, motivational speaking. The preaching that is to be done uh, by the gospel of Jesus is a miraculous thing. Jesus did it and Peter did it and the, disciples, the apostles did it. Preaching's a, an amazing thing, a good work. He washed the disciples' feet. Show of hands, who, like, who likes feet? I don't like feet. I don't like my own feet. Like I, I look down at my feet, like, I'm not touching those things. I stand in soapy water. It, it, they're going to get clean. I'm not a big fan of feet. I, I will rub my wife's feet and my children's feet. Washing the disciples' feet is a big thing for me. I keep trying to find this cultural equivalent today like buying somebody a cup of coffee or knitting a sweater that would be the equivalent but jesus was pretty clear that the washing of the disciples feet was a pretty big deal and he did so and it's a great work that he would humble himself if you read it's in the same discourse that we are in today it says that he took a towel he humbled himself he knelt to these men's feet and just and just washed them have you ever when I was like five, my dad, he, he worked out in fields. He was a very hard worker. Every every year that I've known him, hardworking man. He'd get up before daylight, come home after sunset, work all day long. And he'd come home and say, Tony, take off my shoes. I'll take off your shoes. He wore boots, work boots. Took them off. His feet were dirty, obviously. Been trudging along in mud and water all day. Can you imagine the disciples' feet walking with Jesus all the time, wearing nothing but sandals, dirt roads where, where camels and sheep and donkeys and, and who knows what else walk along, and, and, and they, that's basically their bathroom, and you're walking past and through those things as well. And now Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator, who, who the Bible says, through whom all things were made, kneels down at your feet and starts washing your dirty, stanky feet. That's... That is a good work that somebody would humble themselves in that way. To not be submissive, but to serve in such a hum humiliating way. He loved the outcasts. Some people solely focus on this fact, and it's, it's, it's a little dangerous because you, you forget all the rest of Jesus if you only focus on this. But this is profound, that Jesus would go and love people that the rest of the world rejected. Whether it was a prostitute, whether it was the demon-possessed people, whether it was the drunkard or the glutton, 
or if it was the religious person. You know, Zacchaeus was was a tax collector who had cheated everybody out of money, and Jesus loved him and forgave him. And Zacchaeus repented and gave everything back and then some. Jesus loved the outcast. If you're an outcast today, and whatever that is, you don't fit in at work, you don't fit in your family, you don't fit in, 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 in just anything, you just don't fit in, Jesus loves you. You fit in with Jesus, and that's all that matters at the end of the day. Now I'm going to kick it up a notch. Jesus forgave sins. True or false? Is this, is this a good work? Because we are, we are sinners by nature, the Bible says. This is, that's who we are. It's the very fiber of our being. We, we can't help but sin. We, we wake up sinning. We, we go throughout the day and we do stuff that we just desperately need forgiveness for. And we have this God who has forgiven our sins. He's died for our sins. I remember once uh, uh, an actor, uh, John Cleese, I believe it was, not understanding the death of Jesus, saying that he basically didn't respect it or didn't appreciate it, saying that anybody could die on my behalf. It doesn't mean that I have to worship them. True, lots of people die every day, but Jesus died and then rose again. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God that was aimed at you and you and you and me. So, so literally, the wrath of God aimed towards us and Jesus steps in for us. Nobody else has that ability. God himself had to do that. Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus does more than die. Jesus conquers death. We lose sight of this. We lose the, the awe factor in this, that, that Jesus conquered death. I don't know anybody else who's conquered death. I know people who have died and come back, but then they die again. It's, you know, it's just what happens. We die. Jesus died. Jesus was murdered, first of all. Killed at the hands of men, but for the sins of the same men. And then three days later, took up his life again. Dead for three days, got back up. Shook it off, walked away. Some of these works we will do. Some of these works we should do. Some of these works are not for us. We do not die for people's sins. We cannot forgive sins. Do you remember when Jesus forgave the guy with the mat? They lowered him down. He said, your sins are forgiven. Everybody's like, whoa, who's this guy? What do you mean you get to forgive sins? Only Jesus can do those works. So in this, doing greater works, we have to, in context, understand the works that Jesus is referring to. Jesus says, whatever you ask for in my name will be done for you. Here's how this is wrongly taught. Jesus is basically the guy who follows you around with the checkbook. You say, I want that, Jesus writes the check and gets it for you. I want that in Jesus' name, now that obligates Jesus to do what you want. Jesus, this person needs healing, in Jesus' name I want them healed. Now Jesus is obligated to heal that person. If you read through the Bible, we find a God who is our servant, but, a God who, but we don't find a God who is our slave. And that slave theology... 
that God is somehow indebted to us simply because we have said the right words is anti-biblical and anti-Christian. To do something in the name of Jesus is not just I prayed and I slap a Jesus in Jesus' name sticker on my prayer and now I get what I want. Now you guys have heard me all morning. I've prayed five or six times and I've said in Jesus' name every time. But let me explain to you why I'm doing that. It's not that I've been given permission to do whatever I want. I've been given the obligation to do whatever Jesus wants. So at the end of the day, you come to me and say, Pastor Tony, I need healing. I, I want you to pray for me. Glad to. And I will pray, Lord, if you want this person healed, I pray for healing for them. Obviously, I want it. They definitely want it. But Jesus, I know that you are so good, big, magnificent, that even you can take something as, as bad as sickness and use it for your glory. That you can take a circumstance that I don't want and use it for my good. If we don't believe that, then we have to go back into and apologize to our children for a lifetime of, do this now, it's good for you, you don't understand, but one day you will. Because our Father in Heaven, who is the good Father, the greatest of fathers, has done the same thing, but in a perfect way with us. There are things that we will suffer through, and we will not understand why. But we will go through them for a reason, and they will have a purpose. And they will cause you, they will cause you to grow in a way that you could never do in any other manner. I don't sit up here, a man, in a soft, lofty position. I've watched my first son die, my second son be diagnosed, diagnosed with leukemia. I've watched, I've watched relatives commit suicide. I've seen, I've, I've been laid off from work. I've had houses taken away from me. I understand the pain of life. And I've seen God take every one of those scenarios, which I did not wish upon myself, I did not ask for, and pleaded throughout the whole thing, God, take it away. But I've watched God not take it away. I've watched him make me stronger. I've watched him raise up my wife, raise up my son, raise up my daughter in a strength that they could not get any other way. When we say in Jesus' name, it's not Jesus, you are now obligated to do this. It is Jesus, you are in control. Harry, hi. You own a business, right? If you sent an employee out in your name and they start doing things that you did not approve of, would you be okay with that or would you disapprove of that? <laughs> That's why mom's your only employee. Praise God. Okay, so needless to say, an employee goes out, starts making promises that you never told them to, writing checks you never gave them permission to write, going directions you never gave them permission to go. That would be a problem. We have been given the name of Jesus, but that means we are under his authority. This is all about submission. We operate in and under the authority of Jesus. It doesn't free us to do whatever we want, meaning every whim, it frees us to do whatever he wants. And there's a huge difference. See, I can't just go and conjure up anything I want because I've said in Jesus' name. 
I have to go and find out what it is that Jesus wants that I might do that. I, I don't want to stand opposite of God and have a battle of wills with him. My kids, maybe, but God? I'm going to lose that one. I just have an inkling that I will. So in Jesus' name, Jesus repeats this twice in chapter 14 and several times in this whole discourse. In my name, do things in my name. It's not that you just remember Jesus at the end of a prayer. It's that your aim is Jesus. I want to do what Jesus wants. That means if you are married, you want to do what he wants for your marriage. It means if you earn money, you want to do what he wants for earning your money. It means if you have kids, you want to raise them the way that God would have you raise them. It means if you go to church, you serve God how, how he would want to be served. I do whatever I want. Most kids who say things like that get disciplined, right? I don't know why God the Father would be any different. So let's ask ourselves a hard question today. Do we want what Jesus wants? Do we really want what Jesus wants? Or do we want what we want? I would wager to say, myself included, that we our needle points more towards the we want what we want than we care to admit. We want what Jesus wants when it's good, right? Like, like if there's cake involved or, or we're getting something. Oh, yeah, what Jesus wants. Amen. Hallelujah. But when there's pain, no, no. No, I don't want this. Be, I got to find somebody who can pray to get this away from me. Good luck. Do we want what Jesus wants? For some of you, the indication of whether you are spirit-filled or not is whether you speak in tongues or prophecy or, or some external thing. You know, and I'm not saying that's that's not an indicator, but but I will tell you that when someone comes and tells me that they want what Jesus wants, and I see it in their actions as well, I look at that person and say that's a spirit-filled person. They want what Jesus wants. The Holy Spirit of God has filled them to want what Jesus wants to. They, they no longer care for themselves. They only care about what Jesus wants. Truth be told, church, you will never be more blessed, more filled with joy, more at peace and at rest than when you are controlled by that. When God is everything to you, when Jesus is your beginning and end. Because at the end of the day, you watch, it's like you can step back from life and say, I see these circumstances, and I don't know where they're going, but I have Jesus with me. And like the woman with the issue of blood, and like the, the woman at the well, and, and, and the outcasts of Jesus' day, and the outcasts of today, we can just step back and say, you know what, I might be alone, I might be afraid, I might not have any hope outside of Jesus, but in Jesus I have all my hope. I have everything that I might need. Church, do we really want what Jesus wants? The Holy Spirit makes us, changes us, so that we desire what Jesus desires. So that it's not necessarily that we're okay with everything. It's not like you get the diagnosis for cancer and say, yippee, all right. Doctor using big words and lots of years of treatment. I mean, we don't do, we're not sadistic and we're not looking for pain. But at the end of the day, you look back and say, 
I don't understand, but I can trust. I don't like the pain, but I know it has a purpose. Jesus, you are growing me in a way that cannot happen in any other fashion. Church, the pain you are going through today, the arguments and the, and the disappointments and the the things that just seemingly do not go away, the finances that are never there, the health that won't turn around, the peace that seems elusive. All those things are first found in Christ. If you do not have peace with Christ today, who, who cares about the rest? If you are not reconciled to God through Jesus, you're going to have a, a soft ride into hell. And we don't want that. I would much rather take the long hike of following Jesus into glory or into heaven or into his presence than to have a, a moment of comfort here. And this has been a process of, of, of over a decade of having to get to this place. Paul says, I believe it's to the Philippians, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether I'm hungry or overfull, whether I am rich or I am poor, whether I am tired or, or I am at rest, no matter what my circumstances, I have learned to be content. And it's indeed a learning process. It's not something you just pick up. It starts on day one and ends when you die and you go to be with Jesus. We sang Rock of Ages today. That's, a, that's an old hymn. If you're really paying attention to the words, though, it gets a little depressing towards the end, doesn't it? You know, talk about death a lot and talk about dying. and That doesn't get people amped up, you know? Rah-rah session. Unless they understand that Jesus' death has paid for our sins. You see, the problem with sin is that we can't satisfy it. We can't satisfy the wrath that it incurs. Now, if you understand debt, and we're Americans, so we understand debt, you accrue it. And for some of us, it gets to a point where it's insurmountable. We owe tens of thousands of dollars. We have no way to pay that back. You know, short of bankruptcy or a loan. Well, debts are, sin debt is like that. Only, only one sin creates the amount of debt that is insurmountable. It's not just a lifetime of sin. It's, it's the one sin. And so God looks down upon us, and rather than, than rightfully pour his wrath out upon us, he himself goes and has his own wrath poured upon himself on our behalf. The only one who could perfect, perfectly satisfy the wrath of God is God himself. God loves you more than you love yourself. And he was willing to die to show you that today. And more than that, he has chosen to fill you with his Holy Spirit, with himself, that you might be empowered to do greater works, not die for sin, but to do things that we would consider miraculous. To, to, to heal the sick, 
to be to be involved with with folks and get to know them to become family with a bunch of other messed up people just like us i mean look at us we're we're all just a bunch of people who are just flung together by jesus and we're becoming this this little group here at south bay chapel i love it that's a miracle never lose sight of the miraculous that god does all of the time does Jesus heal the sick still? Yes. Does he still open the eyes of the blind? Yes. Does he do it because we've made him do it? No. Will Jesus heal everybody? No. This past Friday, a, a dear friend of ours who we haven't seen in a few years, she passed away. She went to go be with the Lord. Um, she was at our church in California. And... Um, Got news on Thursday night, I believe, that she was in the hospital. And she had had heart trouble and had surgeries. And But last I heard, she was doing pretty well. So we got word via Facebook that, you know, pray for her. She's she's in the hospital. All right. Say a prayer for her. Friday night, she's gone to be with Jesus. And you know what? I don't want this to sound crass, and I don't want it to sound unfeeling or un unemotional. I'm okay with that. I know where she is now. Why would I be disappointed that she is anywhere else but the presence of the God that she loves so much? Every desire that her heart ever had is now fulfilled in Jesus. And now I can rejoice. My rejoicing pales in comparison to hers. She had the most soulful voice I've ever been in the presence of. There are songs I still sing here on a Sunday morning. I swear I hear her voice in the background. But as much as I might miss that, I can only imagine what she's going through right now. The people she's meeting, the 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 unity that she's feeling, the 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 loss of all all of this flesh. I'm okay with that. Uh, would I have had it another way? You know what? No. Do I want anybody else to die? Of course not. I didn't want her to either. But what Jesus wants for you, I believe, is the best plan that you could be a part of. And even when an old friend passes away, or 21 men in, in, in a faraway country have their heads cut off for their faith? The joy of the Lord can't be stolen. Church, you don't get to places where you're willing to live those types of lives without having the Holy Spirit in you. And so the question today is, is, is that where you're at? If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit might be this is probably a bad word to use, but dormant? Maybe maybe you're unfamiliar with him. It's time to get familiar with him. Not the crazy stuff you see on TV. Not the, not the stuff that makes you feel weird when you watch it. I, I doubt that's the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit of the Bible. The Holy Spirit of the Bible that could so infill you that people come to you to pray and somehow you know what they're going to ask already. Before they even open their mouths, you you already know what they 
we're going to pray about. That somehow God just drops knowledge right into you so that you can pray for them. That, that you would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that you may begin to pray and speak in what the Bible calls another tongue. In an angelic voice that we as people can't decipher. We don't know what you're saying. But God does. You can't manufacture that. You can't make yourself do that. But maybe that is a gift the Holy Spirit gives you. You might have the gift of encouragement. And what that means is that people really like to be around you because they always feel good when they leave you. They just they come around you and they want to follow you because you just keep encouraging them, loving on them, and, and just encouraging them to keep going and moving forward and being filled with hope. This is the God we serve. This is what he expects of us. This is, this is what he has empowered us to do. Let's not, let's not forfeit this. Let's, let's embrace it. Work and live in it. Let's make a lot of mistakes. How many people like making mistakes? I don't like making mistakes. I don't, I don't like erasing. I don't like, I don't like having to go back. I don't like wasting time. But I find that sometimes making mistakes is the best teacher. So let's walk together in the Holy Spirit and see where he leads us. Amen? Let's stand. The gospel message is this, that Jesus died to give us so much forgiveness, reconciliation. Not just that he would wink his eye at your sin, but that he would pay the price for your sin. And to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you have the Holy Spirit without Jesus? No. The Holy Spirit is a gift to Christians. God sounds exclusive. Yeah, like the rest of the world. You can't even go to BJ's without a membership. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is exclusive for Christians. And so the first thing you got to do is give your life to Jesus. Not to get the Holy Spirit, because you know you need forgiveness. So I want to pray with you today. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to make you come to the altar. I'm not going to you know, do a bunch of heads up, seven up to get find out who's a Christian or not. I just want to pray with you. Jesus, man, you're, you're the best. My words fail to describe just how great and awesome you are. I, I simply want to pray, Lord, for the people in this church. I want them to know you as you are to be known. I don't want them to, to be like me. I don't want them to copy what I'm doing. I want them to know you. I want them to follow after you so closely that the only intent of their heart would be to please you each and every day. Not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of love. The death on the cross, your son dying in our place, frees us and liberates us from the guilt of our sin. It frees us from the sin we've committed, the, the shame and the wrath and the dirtiness that, that we've just accrued over time, you have washed us clean by your very own sacrifice. So Jesus, I'm praying that now as we are in this new state, as we confess our sins, as we repent, as we embrace the grace that you have given us, that, that this would be the new life for us. 
that as we go throughout the rest of this day, we're not even talking about the rest of our lives, Lord, but the rest of Sunday, that every intent of our heart would be geared towards you, that you would transform, mold, create, shape us in that fashion. Not because we are worthy, Lord, in spite of the fact that we are unworthy. Not because we've earned it, Lord, because we've done nothing but earn your wrath. But because you are a good, gracious, loving Father who gives to your children. Your word says that for those who have faith in Christ, have been given the right to become the children of God. Thank you, Lord, for making us your children. Lord, I pray for those today who maybe today's the day where they give their life to the Lord or 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 maybe it's the time the just the, the next time they have given their life to the Lord or the newest time. Well, Father, keep refining, keep molding, keep shaping as we lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to you. Jesus, be with your people, bless them. May they see everything through Jesus. And we pray this, Lord. I'm praying this, Lord, hoping, asking that if this is not your will, well, by all means, Lord, I step back. You are in control. You have your way, Lord. If I have said or spoken out of place or out of turn, Lord, please correct. And we give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.